Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Xiveria Simmons. Simmons is included in Southern Accent, a major group exhibition now at the Nasher Museum at Duke University. The exhibition, which was curated by the Nasher's Trevor Schoonmaker and Miranda Lash of the Speed Art Museum, is on view at Duke through January 8th, when it will travel to Louisville. Southern Accent is a thoughtful examination of how artists have questioned and explored the contemporary South. The thorough, extraordinary exhibition website features work in the show, a music library related to the exhibition, conversations with artists who are in the show, and plenty more. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. It's well worth checking out. The terrific exhibition catalog, which expands on the show's theme by including essays on today's South, is available from Amazon for 50 bucks. Simmons is a multidisciplinary artist whose work addresses issues around landscape, migration, and more. Museums that have featured her work in exhibitions or hosted performances include the Museum of Modern Art, the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Kitchen in New York, the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco, the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City, the MCA Chicago, the ICA Boston, and more. Xaviera Simmons, after the break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Get an insider's look at one of your favorite art institutions. The Iris is the Getty's blog, offering an engaging, behind-the-scenes look at art in all its aspects. It's a project of the entire Getty community, written by curators, educators, scientists, guest speakers, and many others. Find out how a Getty curator reunited the head and body of an ancient sculpture and explore the charming mystery of an artist's dog who shows up in several manuscripts. Now you can go behind the scenes at the Getty every day by subscribing to the Iris and receiving an email whenever there is a new post. To learn more and to subscribe, visit getty.edu iris. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Degas, A New Vision, the most significant international survey of the work of Edgar Degas in nearly 30 years. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, assembled from public and private collections around the world. Opens October 16th exclusively at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Degas for more. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University is the only Midwest venue for Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957, on view through January 1st. This immersive exhibition spotlights an experimental school and its extraordinary impact on contemporary art, with works by 90 artists including Annie and Joseph Albers, Buckminster Fuller, Jacob and Gwendolyn Knight Lawrence, Robert Rauschenberg, and Cy Twombly, plus a schedule of in-gallery performances. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Saveria Simmons, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here and nice to be here live. 
I want to start by talking about land and landscape because they're in a lot of your work. You told the writer Paul Laster that your father was raised in Georgia as a sharecropper in the late sharecropper era? I mean, he was 17 when he left Georgia, and he his, his family, they were sharecroppers, or the last remnants of sharecroppers. So just to fill in the system a little bit, sharecropping ends around the 1930s and 40s when industrialized agriculture, which had, which had existed elsewhere in the United States in the 1870s, finally makes it into the South. What did your father tell you about the place and the land? I mean, ends is a really interesting question when it comes to the South and, and, and also history and American landscape. I don't know if institutions have ends in a clear-cut way, right? So maybe, you know, the formal institution ended, but there were still, and there are still remnants of that history, you know, are present even today. So in terms of my my father and I grew up in a community of Southern people, you know, not just my father, but my grandparents are from the South, from South Carolina and my babysitters, you know, my aunties, they were all from the South. So, you know, I come from a landscape of the South and I think that has a lot to do with being, you know, a black American, which is a, which is a mixed race human being. Did they tell you stories about the South, about the land, the landscape here? It's, it was more, there were no stories told per se. It was more like how people lived, right? Like my father, because my father came from the South, he became an, an undertaker in the North, in New York. And he basically became an, uh, you know, a mortician, an undertaker, and if you're a black American, I don't know, or if you're a southerner, you understand the reasons why one would become an undertaker or, a, you know, a mortician. And that has to do with economics, right? Like, that's a that was a foreshore job. It was a foreshore community, community need. But it was also a, it was a, a foreshore you were going to be middle class and above, right? Because it was consistent. Bodies always had to be processed if you if you if you will so that was one you know what I mean I grew up with a knowledge that 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 sort of impetus comes from my father's upbringing in the south to make sure that he could provide you know a living for himself and then the rest and then you know my grandmother is from South Carolina and her grandparents were Native American and African. You know, her grandfather was Native American and her grandmother was African. So, and her grandfather built the first school in their town in South, in South Carolina. So, you know, it was for me inherent in living as a young person in the, the early 80s and understanding the culture of my family. And I'll add that even my care, the way that I was raised was very kin folk based in mm -hmm. a way. Like, you know, I didn't just live with my mother and father in a nuclear family. I also lived with babysitters and aunts and, and aunties and, and adopted aunts and aunties, most of them from the South, who were cooking Southern food, you know, and engaging in very Southern like habits, you know, that are from the 50s and 60s. 
Is there any relationship between your family history, both within the broader South or the specifics of South Carolina or Georgia, and what, in terms of your art world biography, is the starting place, which is the walking pilgrimage you took when you were still a teen? Well, I wasn't a teen. I was in my early 20s. Oh, you were in your early 20s. But I, I think, you know, I grew up in New York City, but I also, my mother went to boarding school in Maine. So when she was in high school. So even though I grew up in a pretty urban environment, I grew up every winter and some summers going to Maine, which is pretty similar visually to the South in a way because it has so many different places that you have to... There's so many islands in Maine, and there's, there's, there's a certain way, even though it's 98% Caucasian right right now, there's a certain way of living outside that you don't, especially in the summers, and, and working with local foods, and all these things that you know were happening for me in the 80s and 90s, you know, living amongst, you know, people who were tending to their land and working with local foods. All of that was something that I grew up experiencing. So even though I am a New Yorker, I always had a sort of pastoral engagement simultaneously, thanks to my parents, my mother, really. So are you sort of side-eyeing at the art world tendency to begin your art world story with that two-year trip? No, I mean, I think that that two-year trip, you know, it was a trip where I I walked for two years with Buddhist monks. But before that, I, you know, I took six years off between finishing my undergraduate, you know, from starting and finishing my undergraduate studies at Bard. And I did all these other things. Like I was a photographer's assistant for Walter Chin, who's a really well-known fashion photographer. And I did that for many years. Somehow that part, yeah, that that part of my art world biography doesn't get included and then it really a waitress for example and i was a waitress (laughs) yeah doesn't fit the art world narrative of how someone becomes yeah oh yeah i had to wait tables so that i could pay for myself to go to school so that i could you know learn how to use the equipment and and make the work that i make now but yeah so i was i waited tables i worked as a photographer's assistant and then you know, I did the walk with this a group of Buddhist monks and lay people in 1998 to 2000. And that, you know, kind of shifted or cemented in me what I wanted to do. So it's fine that it starts there. But I usually try to fill in the blanks a little bit because I've always been an artist. I don't really think that I've ever been anything else. So more of a co-equal group of experiences rather than the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of those experiences then is, is, is let's get to the art is you grew up in New York and you've talked about how much you loved going to the museums. And I've, in a number of interviews you've done, I've, I've read that as just kind of a broad blanket thing. Mm -hmm. What were you looking at that caught your attention at what ages and why? Yeah. It's so weird. When I think of New York city, and my because I grew up an only child, so you know only children tend to wander around, right? Like, and so when I was really young, I was latchkey kid. So my mother was a single parent, and I would 
you know, take the bus from my elementary school and I would always go to the library. And that was my thing. Like, and that's because my mother was a writer and I always, she always had us, had me reading, you know, lots of things kind of beyond myself in a way. And so I would always go to the library. I mean, and I would spend hours reading about anything from food culture to animal, animal rights, you know, to, you know, art, little bits of art. And my local library in New York had, you know, books on art and I spent time reading them. I think from the time I was about 10 or 11 Mm -hmm. onwards. And, and then my grandmother lived in Harlem. And so I would go, I would walk from Harlem. I would say when I became like 13, 14, I would walk from her house to up fifth Avenue and to the museums. And I would go to like the Met with my quarter. And I was, you know, I would be so intimidated. You have to pay something. You have to pay something. As long as you just give them a quarter, you're good. Exactly. As long as you, and I would be so intimidated, but I really would go and give them like a penny or a quarter. And I would just, I, I don't know. It's weird to think about now because we're so protective of kids. And I don't even know if kids even do that these days as wander around by themselves. They seem to have scheduled activities. But when I was growing up, that's what I did. I wandered around museums and the the thing that stands out the most, which is something we were talking about earlier, is is MoMA, <laughs> and uh, and more some than of the Met. I, the Met was more for because the Met was so overpowering yeah. an institution to Especially be. Especially if you're a smaller human. Yeah, <laughs> you. I was so intimidated just to pay my quarter. Yeah, no, I, I, really, I totally remember the same thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't really remember the experience of 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 seeing the artwork, but I. But I remember the experience of going. But MoMA, I remember. I remember the architecture. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, the, the amount of people who populated that museum. And I remember the Calders, which were everywhere. Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have guessed Calders. At Especially least, at, the older, at the old MoMA. I mean, at, even no, at the old MoMA. At the, at, at the, at the pre-expansion MoMA, the Calders. And I, you know, it hadn't occurred to me. That in the new MoMA era, there's like one Calder now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, why the Calders? Just out of curiosity. You know, it's weird because the Calders, I remember they would always have a, I think because MoMA owns a lot of Calders. And now that I'm an adult and I've done, I've spent many months and almost years inside of MoMA's archives and looking at their exhibition catalogs for other exhibitions that I've since produced with the museum, you know, for a while, MoMA was kind of operating from a kind of limited collection, you know? And so when you look at their catalogs from the beginning of their time, a lot of works continuously repeat in the exhibitions, you know? So I think at that time, before the expansion, before they started collecting, you know, radical works, you know, they had a specific collection and they kind of just rotated it from one space to the other. And I just remember seeing lots of Calders in the hallways. They had like stairwells and there was always Calders and Calders private exhibitions. I don't know. I don't know why, (laughs) except I think that at that time they were not circulating the collection as much question i had not planned on asking do those calders in any way make it into your work no 
<laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have thought so. But you remembered that people, you remembered they were cool. People treated them with reverence. Oh, yeah. I do remember, the. you know, the one thing I do think about when I think about Calder or think about seeing Calder as an, a young person was that it seemed like work that was accessible to me because it looked, yeah. I mean, it's mobiles, right? Like, yeah. I mean, that's what it looked like to me as a child and there were shapes and colors that felt accessible to, you know, my, my, my temperament. I had guessed that, that landscape painting at the Met had gotten to you at some point. It's getting to me now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go back. Let's stay a little earlier and we'll come, we'll come into the present. When did the idea of landscape and art begin to interest you or when did you begin to look at those 19th century Hudson River paintings and so forth? I think it was a slow burn in a way. Like I think again, you know, growing up in an urban environment and then, you know, getting the opportunity to leave, you know, and go especially to Maine and and living in that environment Mm -hmm. for summers really affected my vision. And then it really, I really can give credit though to my art history professor, this woman named Laurie Dahlberg, who teaches at Bard. I mean, it's just the way she teaches, and she still teaches there, it's the way she teaches art history. I feel really sensitive actually thinking about it because I haven't really thought about why. I think it, it was the combination of Laurie's way of introducing French paintings, French landscape-based painters, and then tying that into photography and contemporary photography, and then thinking of, and then also working with Stephen Shore and Anmi Lee. Those were my, you know, especially on me. I mean, who teach at Bard. Who teach at Bard? I mean, I think it really cemented like a, a conversation that I knew I needed to have for or against what they were teaching. I just knew that I was attracted to those landscapes, and that has to do with walking. And then again, you know, my my personal background of traveling from New York City to Maine, but it also, and then it has to do with walking. It has to do with being feet on the ground in a meditative space for two years. So being in Eastern American forested landscapes, once you did that, that was a point of entree into paintings and photography of American landscape art. And, and to hear you tell the story that way, makes me see or suggests to me a lot of biography in the early to mid period of your work. Early to mid. I feel early. (laughs) (laughs) I Um, mean, is that the way you think of how that got there? How, how you as a person and model actress in your own work ends up in the landscape? Is that the way you would build the narrative? I would never say that any of the works that I populate or where I'm in, none of them are audio autobiographical at all they really I try to have a conversation with you know some painters that I actually really love and some photographers that I really respect and 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 think about landscape is a character you know it's an intentional field like I could I could have populated a lot of these photographs I could have used an urban space right and the characters would have had a different kind of determination or definition or a sense of agency but I really wanted to think about 
you know, the sublime and who populates the sublime and, and, and the idyllic and who populates those, those spaces, especially art historically. Or who defines it. Or who defines it, you know. So being a producer, being an actor, being a, being a director, sometimes being the funder, all of that is also important to me in the construction of these photographs and, and, and for audiences to know that there are multiple types of people engaging in conversation surrounding landscape. So, you know, to make a body of work in which you go into the landscape with a camera and a plan obviously involves a great deal of pre-planning, thought, gas, <laughs> you know, all of the things, you know, expense. So clearly you, you decided to go into the landscape and make work about the American landscape tradition with a great deal of intentionality. Mm-hmm. Why was landscape something that you wanted to do? I mean, I've made other, I made other works before this and I've since shifted, but in, in paying particular attention to this body of work, which has resurfaced as the past year, my first answer is that every household that I've ever gone into has one landscape painting in it somewhere, whether it be in the bathroom, whether it be on the calendar that the gas station gave you, whether it be, you know, in, you know, a postcard on the refrigerator, there's always an image of a landscape. There's somewhere. It's like sort of like our first no matter what socioeconomic class you come from, there's some connection to landscape. There is, especially in America. And I I really wanted to start from there. It was like A. It was like letter A. When I realized like everyone has some kind of connection to landscape and not in a hippie way, in a very like aesthetic way. Everyone. Mm. And how can I populate you know, these landscapes that everyone else also has ideas around. How can I slowly shift how you view these particular landscapes and what characters can kind of own them? We need to talk then about who throughout American art history has owned them. There are lots of places in American art history from which African-Americans or, to use Kerry James Marshall's preferred term, black people, because his project is more than about just America, about the United States. You know, there's nowhere in American art history from which black people and the black experience is more absent than the American landscape tradition. When we think of the American landscape tradition starting with moving off the eastern seaboard and up the Hudson River and other river valleys in Niagara and Yosemite. We're talking entirely and exclusively about northern, with a capital N, landscapes. In, in that early 19th century tradition, they are, they are white-moneyed northern. Yosemite's a gold-mining landscape, right? I mean, that's was it part of your project from the beginning to address the absence of black artists and black bodies from the American landscape tradition? I don't know if I don't know if I define my work in that way wholeheartedly. I wasn't saying um, defining though. No, no, but no. Was... But I mean, like in terms of thinking about my project, right? Like I, I, I think, of course, number one about the absence of colored bodies in these landscapes, especially like sublime. But I also think about different psychologies, like 
you know, again, being an African-American means you're of mixed race. There's like psychologies running through and there's histories that need to be acknowledged. There's an, there's a native American history that is a part of the makeup of most African-Americans. There's a European psychology that's a part of most African-Americans. And there's an Africanness to us that is just inherent in who we are. And it's also something that's been placed on us, you know, to make sure that we remember while simultaneously erasing our memory of, of our, our kind of multi-dimensional culture or cultural history. So for me, these works, they are at, at one level about pointing out, you know, the lack of, of African-American bodies in these landscapes, especially the sublime or the romanticized landscape or the aesthetically lush. But they also are about contemplating migrant, migrant mythology, migrant psychology, and 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 i hope that you know looking at these works also tie into some of the other works that i make where you know i've kind of unraveled a lot of conversations around migrancy in general because i feel like as an american in 2016 we can't help but be conscious of the migratory nature of this you know of how this country's been built we're going to come back to migrants and refugees in a little bit. But before we get there, one of the things that I, I think about your work is, is it puts African-Americans in landscape. And a friend of mine who's a painter, Keandra Strobert, and I have this kind of little running conversation that hopefully she won't mind me saying out loud, which is that one of the reasons for the absence of African-Americans in art of the landscape, either created by themselves or later, is that, especially after 1850, when the Fugitive Slave Law was passed, being outside was not a safe place for African-Americans to be often. And that she thinks that maybe one reason that you don't get a black presence in the landscape is maybe a response to that. I disagree with that. You know, again, living in New York, living in Harlem, living in Brooklyn, growing up in these landscapes, growing up among Southerners, there was a lot of outdoor living, meaning life, meaning life was lived out of doors. And I think that that's also a part of this work. It's, 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 it's not something that I think is the first layer of the reading, but there's there's a certain joy that's inherent in black culture especially and latino culture and you know that you don't necessarily see in other cultures which is like this embrace of the outdoors and living life arguments uh, you know discussions heated moments that just happen outdoors and that's you know a part of this conversation in in, in the way that i see the work is mm. you know bringing a lot of the sort of they're just right, they're right, they're right, right in most African-Americans' conversations or, or lifestyles, but it's not necessarily known, you know, in the broader white culture, maybe. But I, I don't really don't like speaking so conservatively about my work. It's really difficult for me to, to, to keep banging my head over thinking about, you know, or 
having to define the work based on these like kind of conservative ways of, of viewing because at the same time, I love, you know, the Hudson River School painters. And there's, there's sometimes it's not about going against, you know, their projects. It's more like being in conversation, which is ultimately what, the, what work I'm trying to make is to be in conversation with, not necessarily to be against no, or I, I, to overpopulate for the sake of overpopulating to make a point like that. Let's switch to the characters that are in the work. I think one of the best-known parts of your biography is that you spent two years learning about acting and directing. How, in terms, how, how did you develop... Are we looking at one character in many different guises, or are we looking at many different characters? Many different characters, for sure. And, and I wouldn't have made... I don't think I would have acted in these works. I, actually, it was a prompt from Anmi Lee. I started making works inside... I was thinking a lot about definitions of 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 individuals and like how to make works that you know kind of were like a b c like this individual looks like this straight away and so the photograph should really be straightforwardly about that and on me we were in I was in school and she was like your characters are not believable like they're just not as intriguing as they could be and I literally, I took that, that, you know, sentence and I was like, oh no, they're going to be a lot more believable. <laughs> and I went and, you know, studied with Maggie Flanagan for two years and kind of got it beaten into me. The simplest thing, right? An actor prepares, an actor prepares two years of basically someone teaching you to be prepared, like a Boy Scout, right? Isn't that what Boy Scouts say? Be prepared is the motto. Be prepared is the motto. And, I mean, among other things that I learned, you know, working, studying with Maggie was, but to be prepared, like, and to have everything together to do what it is you need to do and and to learn how to play the body as an instrument. So, for me, these are different characters because each landscape is a different space and, and, each space requires a different character to bring the space alive and for those two things to have a conversation. And then also the gestures are a whole nother conversation. So before we get to the gestures, because I love the gestures because they, several of them recur throughout 150 years of American art. How do you develop the characters? Do you storyboard them? How do you determine what they wear? What is the process you go through? to get a a character onto a print? I am a control freak with my work. I sketch it all out. I think, again, that probably has to do with studying with Maggie and studying, you know, theater. It has to be sketched. It has to be planned out. You know what I mean? The, the, I, I will meander, but I, I don't, I'm not a really good drafts person, but I am a really good writer. So my sketchbook looks like a whole bunch of text and then with like stick figure drawings. I really wish I was a really good drafts person, <laughs> but it's a lot of stick figure drawings and directions. And, and then I'll usually trans, you know, I'll type out, you know, that writing and then I'll find, you know, clothing that I think works for the character and hair. And I try to consider, I mean, again, that has to do with actor trainer training. Like you consider 
how the character is going to look, what the character is going to wear, how the character is going to position. You know, the col- is it a color image? Is it a black and white image? You know, what side of the psychology do you want to have the character focus on? You know, human psychology is not that diverse. We kind of all, there's a spectrum that we all work from. So I try to work within that spectrum. Someday when your archives are at the Archives of American Art or wherever your archives will go, will historians and researchers flip through those pages and see that you've written out stories and backstories of who these people are? Is it that acute a way of character forming? or I think that comes when I'm actually on site. Oh. And then... So, so part of what we see is you responding to the site then? Yeah. At that point, that's, it's definitely, I don't think if you looked at my journals, you would see like, okay, referencing Norman Rockwell, right. And thinking about this or referencing Carrie James Marshall and thinking about that. It's not really, it's, it's not that toe to toe, but it is, I am thinking the sketchbooks are much more about an overall overarching idea of character and place and kind of knowing what types of spaces I want to find because most of these have to happen traveling will we ever see those on a gallery wall as long as it's up to you or will we probably never see those until they're in an archive somewhere and you're you're gone (laughs) probably when I'm gone because because the sketch they're that private well they just they just have like other you know there's no separate sketchbook from you know, all the other things that I need to write, like my grocery list and then my wish list or, you know, my annoyed at XYZ person. You know what I mean? It's all, it's all one. Like I, people often ask me for studio visits and I find it really frustrating to give studio visits now. It's the more that I develop and the more work that I produce, it's difficult for me to give studio visits only because my, my studio is the sketchbook. It's, I mean, I have a studio, it's fabulous, and you know, I love working in there, but really the studio, everything inside of the sketchbook is what directs me, and that's a conversation. It's hard to show someone, okay, if you look at this page, you'll see what I'm going to make, because it's like kind of hieroglyphics at this point, the, the, until you get to the actual work. Yeah, yeah, the studio visit has become a bit of a or can be a real managed, staged yeah. experience of a sort of Hollywood variety anyway it really, these days. <laughs> it really is. I, it's so weird. And, and I think that, I know we're going off topic, but I think there's a lot of expectations yeah. of artists to have these studio spaces, these grand studio spaces. These planned out yeah. marches of the figure of authority visiting the studio yeah. collector curator that they then, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's become a different thing than... I find it so so challenging. I'm like, can we just get together and talk? And, and in that, we will we'll understand each other. Yeah. You play some of these characters in, in much of your work. There's, there's an element of, such as the three pieces here in, in Southern Accent, the three works from the 2010 Thundersnow Road. series. Thundersnow Road. Thundersnow Road yeah. series. You told Paul Laster in what might be the best interview you've done or that someone has done with you that the words portrait and landscape were interchangeable to you and i had you know when i wrote my notes days ago i thought wow that's that's like a cool 
neat mm-hmm. thing that must be unique to you, and, and I want you to explicate that, and I still do. Mm-hmm. But I notice now in the show here that that runs through a lot of the work in, in the show in a way I was not expecting and hadn't ever thought of. So could you maybe detail a little bit of why portraiture and landscape are interchangeable to you? I'd like to tr- tie that question a little bit to what you said about this particular show, Southern Accent, here at the Nasher. I think that particularly artists of color, if you want to say, there's always, you know, displaced people are always going to be searching for home no matter what. And whether that's a constructed home or whether that's a home that they actually live in but don't feel quite comfortable in. And, And displaced, I mean, punk rockers in New York City constructed homes via squatting, right? They constructed new homes. They became nomadic in a way and constructed new homes, right? And there's lots of photographs of punk rockers, you know, in squats, right? Because they be, they are kind of like a group that was displaced, self-displaced. But in terms of this show, looking at a lot of the artists of color in particular, there's always this yearning for landscape, for home, for like where is my where is my space how do i define my space like what what outside of my physical home like as in the architectural structure what where can i go beyond that how can i grasp beyond or how can i feel safe beyond the confines of like enclosed quarters and i think there's a lot more freedom in the out of doors there's a lot more ability to use the imagination in a way that is difficult when if you're living under kind of displaced or undefined conditions. So I think that's that's something that's why that's a theme and I think also there's like a a, a real love and that has to do with our our personal familiar histories. There's a real love for our grandparents' spaces or our, our forefathers' spaces, even if they didn't necessarily own it, it's where they come from. My guest is Xaviera Simmons. We'll be right back after a break. The Project Series, which celebrates new and emerging artists, is back at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Experience a mesmerizing new work by Nashtio Mosquito that manifests throughout the museum as a performance, a video installation, and various visual, sonic, and social media interventions. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Suspended Animation, an exhibition of six emerging artists working with digital animation, is currently on view at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. By turns eerie, absurd, and entrancing, installations by Ed Atkins, Antoine Catala, Ian Chang, Josh Klein, Helen Martin, and Agnieszka Polska confront us with unsettling visions of our digital selves. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and find out who lives in the uncanny valley. Support for The Man Podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting three exhibitions that reframe the objects and environments of everyday life, July 29th through October 15th, 2016. Exquisite Every Day showcases 18th-century European works of decorative art from the J. Paul Getty Museum that highlight the period's achievements in domestic design. The Ordinary Must Not Be Dull explores how Klaas Oldenburg's soft sculptures playfully alter the material, form, and scale of commonplace items, overturning sculptural conventions. 
Architecture Collective Raumleber Berlin's commission 4562 Enright Avenue disassembles a structurally unsound St. Louis house, giving its salvaged elements new life inside the Pulitzer as an installation that explores the history, present, and future of urban dwellings. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Xaviera Simmons. The characters in the pictures are often doing things. Pointing is the most common gesture, but, you know, holding a camera or doing whatever. First, are the gestures different when the character is being played by you and when the character is not being played by you, or does that not matter? No, that does not matter. I mean, I would, I love, I, 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 it's, I can't, I can't necessarily say that I can give, I can throw all the marbles on the, the floor, right? Give them, give everything away. I mean, I, I, I expect that an audience will bring knowledge to each, each of my works. And I expect that an audience will bring their interpretations of the work. So where the, where of, of the photographs and the, what they are doing are up for interpretation. That's why I don't name the works usually, you know, the places there's, there's not Virginia in 2010 or, you know, Mozambique. The traditional way of naming a photograph yeah. is Johnson City, comma, Johnson County, Tennessee, comma, 2012. Right. That's a way that photographers have used since the mid-19th century. So right. Yeah. I don't really have that interest. I really, I really want work to be a lot more open-ended, and I really want the conversation to include a wide variety of people. Because it's, you know, just because I'm, you know, the main what is it, protagonist of the work in, in all the different forms, the narratives that I'm drawing from are not just from an American, African-American experience. And, and it's just, you know what I mean, just because the actor, this is something that, you know, this conversation is actually very conservative for me, to be honest, because I've, I've my work has shifted so much and I don't tend to... I'm not making work like this in the same way. So it's kind of a moment of reflection thinking about this work, but the character should transcend its place or even the character itself. Like I really want people to enter it from different angles that being culturally, ethnically, also thinking of, again, migratory histories, and then thinking about landscape on multiple levels, like who owns land, who is allowed to exist in certain spaces, who has been pictured historically in certain spaces, and who has the opportunity to populate these spaces in new and different ways. So the gestures are, it's, it's like having a toolbox and making sure that you can, you repeat, right? There's some gestures that need repetition because there's some psychologies that need to be continuously pointed out mm. over time. Let's talk about a project you, I think, started in 2010 called When You're Looking at Me, You're Looking at Country. Mm. And I think you continued to show that work into, what, 2012, 2013, 14? I know you, I mean, continued for several years. I started, it's actually a free portrait series right, right, that I started in 2004. <laughs> oh, and four. Yeah. It was a project for more art in New York City. Well, that was the, that was 
the when you're looking at me, you're looking at country iteration. But the free portraits uh, started in 2004. Were you interested in the studio, as uh, the portrait studio, as a particular space? Was that kind of the the nut of that idea? I don't want to say that I was a wanderer, but making works that felt very migratory. I also a wanted to make works that were community based. So the free portrait series, which is something that a lot of photographers are doing now. I started it in 2004 where I would offer free portraits to passersby. And I think what makes my series a little bit different is that I work with a, usually with a four by five camera. So I work really slowly to make the portraits because I use film. And then it gives me an opportunity to kind of sculpt the models. And I always, always make this work in communities where there aren't you know lots of museums and where I know I know that the population is not like running to museums to to see artworks and it's also kind of an interruption most of all of this work is all of the free portraits happen in urban spaces and you can't see that in the photographs most of the time you can tell that by probably the population that's that's inside of the image but you cannot tell the landscape. And that, again, has to do with, I think, a lot about these sort of itinerant, like, or traveling photographers or, or you know, anyone from Irving Penn to, like, oh, there's a really famous one that he, oh, they found his negatives. Oh. Or you can go back to the daguerreotype era. Yeah, you can go back to the daguerreotype, exactly. Facing Civil War camps. Exactly. You can Taking what might be the last picture. Exactly. You can go back to the daguerreotype, but I'm really thinking of, and I can't remember his name offhand, but you know, there's all these like, you know, they lived in the community, they took photographs of the community. And then, you know, there was just studio, like, like our modern day Sears photographers. But I'm, I've always loved those images. I've always loved images of photographers of the community, of their particular community, taking images of their community and constructing. I just do it outdoors because I can get a a good cross section of people and I want to give them portraits. So that's the, that's the main nugget of the, of that project is to make the photographs and then handprint them and then send them back to the participants that I meet on the street. You know, when you moved on from that project, did you entirely leave it there? Or did that inform some of the next things you did, whether it was your interest in the archive or or in other work, like the landscape as portrait work? You mean the works that we're discussing now or the free portraits? Whether the free portraits informed the next few years' worth mm. of work. I mean, I the free portraits, I haven't produced them in a couple of years, but they are pretty much, I've always tried to say this and, and remind myself, is that I want to offer that service, I guess, my ability to to direct and make a photograph, basically sculpt a person, a stranger inside of a photograph, which means having conversations with strangers and making them feel comfortable to sit for film and then and then making sure to populate their homes with beautiful images of themselves. That's something that's something I'll probably always do. I mean, I'll take a break from it, but it's it's weird because I've been thinking of them lately. Like, mm. I haven't done a free portrait series in a few years. Like, where 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 would I like to go? You know, where 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 would feel right to go and sit with a community and actually make work, and then know that that work is going to populate 
lots of people's homes, meaning like neighbors will have photographs by the same photographer. Why, do, why, why do you think you're thinking about it now? Why does it also conceptually remain interesting? Mm. I mean, I understand the personal appeal, but I mean, yeah. just in terms of a 20 year arc, why does that engagement remain? I think it has a couple of different tones. I think we're losing types of people. And, and that's something that I find really troubling. Like we're losing craftspeople. We're losing language, you know. We're losing certain ways people look, actually, how they physically dress. We're sort of all becoming very similar looking in a way, you know what I mean? And, and with similar modes of being. And I'm really interested in, you know, finding people who aren't always fitting the same mold or or capturing language and people who still have 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 some seasoning have kept some of their originality and you find that not so much in like major city you find that in countryside so i'm 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 starting to want to capture and those portraiture people. being a good way to and portraiture do that. i mean portraiture or or text language for me would be the easiest way to do that and and also there's an exchange you you have in in recent years made work that mixes an interest in the archive and and you know just an awful art historical phrase i apologize for just uh -huh. using it it makes use of found images mm. whether they're kind of google images sourced or or print based mm -hmm. with an interest in i don't know if you like the word refugees or not but migrants or refugees does a kind of ongoing, intensifying global refugee migrant moment, do you think, feed into that interest, or is it not related? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, of course. I mean, when I first started making those works, which I did in 2010 with a piece called Super Unknown, which is a pretty huge grid-like collection of images that I found online of of migrants mid-migration in boats for in example. boats it's all in the ocean and i you know i found the images and i digitally worked with them and you know the impetus was for that was to get out of my studio so i i, I hope it's clear like i'm i'm a little bit restless right i'm con it's it's my practice is i control it but i'm also very restless right and so i need to wriggle out of some of the constructs that i start to put myself into, which is like working with characters and landscapes. But I still have a thematic core that runs throughout my project, right? There's usually some engagement with landscape. There's usually some engagement with a lot, meaning like I can't just show one image or I can't just say like, I'm going to make for this show, I'm going to make a photograph. It has to be a photograph that's attached to uh, collaborating with musicians, that's attached to working with a museum, that's attached to a, a record label, that's attached to, it can't be, you know, it, it has to be only played on a vinyl record. I mean, it's just part of my practice. So making Super Unknown really came out of thinking about photography and thinking about how to make a modern image. Like, a modern image, I don't know, is it made with film? Like, Or is it even a single image? Or is it even a single image? Like, I don't, I think it, when I made it in 2010, when I started collecting images, it was really thinking about how an artist collects, what things they collect. 
And what I realized was that I was collecting a lot of images online and I was, and then I started to think, well, what images are most enticing to me? And the images that really spoke to me were these like images in the water, in between spaces, similar to my characters in the landscape. And these in between spaces, they off, I mean, the, the ocean is a very mysterious place, right? It's, it's where most of our ancestors have traversed. It's also, it's half brings you enormous joy, but it's also a graveyard, right? Like it's, it's, it's a scary it, place. It's a scary place. And especially in some of the images you select where you have 40 people on a boat. Right. That is not made for 40 people. Exactly. And I'm going to just go back. I think for me, the main, the, it goes back to the walk and to the pilgrimage that I did with the monks at one point, we took a boat, we took a schooner from, is it schooner? Because you're a schoon maker, right? <laughs> it is a schooner. Trevor, the curator. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a schooner. And so we, we had walked for five months. We get to Key West, Florida, and we are going to take a boat from, this is 2000. We're taking a boat from Key West to Cuba, which is you know, at that time was really like, wow, like, I can't believe this is happening. I'm going to Cuba. And I remember being on that boat and I was in on that boat for a long, it was 18 hours. It was a, it was a long time. And I don't know why it was so long now that I think about it, but we took that boat in the middle of the night. So I remember being in the middle of the night, in the middle of the ocean and before getting to Cuba. And that was the, 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 the main thing is leaving America and going to Cuba via boat and via the ocean and thinking about everyone. I mean, the people who've taken that journey, the ocean in the middle of the night is one of the scariest places you could ever be in. And I just, that was an, that was sort of another reason why I kept coming back to these images was my own memory of traveling, even though I was in a little bit of a, I was in a safer cocoon than you know the image the migrants that are in the images and super unknown i still in some small way related to the mystical Mm. qualities of that journey and and now it's sort of spiraled out because that those images are now a part of our culture in a way that they weren't even in 2010 i mean we've you know the culture has sort of caught up to the fact that you know people are risking their lives to have a a Western way of life. You know, they're risking everything, you know, to come, to come here or to go to Europe. And I'm, I can, I'm continually fascinated by the risks in taking that kind of a journey. And, and also the implications of the photographer, (laughs) because there, if, if there are images of, of that journey, it's because, there was someone above who actually could document it, which means they were documenting not just that journey, but the, the results of that journey, whether they be good or bad for the individuals on those boats. So when you make work using these found images of migrants, refugees, or both, or either, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I say migrants. Migrants. Yeah. Those are specifically nonfiction images that you present in a way that kind of reminds us they are, you know, that, yeah. that establishes their authenticity as nonfiction images. Mm-hmm. In much of your other work, it's fiction. You know, they are 
circumstances of your own creation and landscapes of your own choosing. Do you see there as being a relationship between, first of all, do you think of them in terms of fiction and nonfiction? They are definitely nonfiction, but I think because I work with them so closely, they sort of become part of my factory. I don't know what I, my computer, right? They're like part of my computer, which is like, you know, it's, it, they're part of my system. They, you know, they, because they get conditioned, right? My they eyes, their authenticity and the, what they were originally created to be. Or exactly. Exactly. I mean, they are, I think for the viewer probably because you, you don't usually sit and look at a, a multitude of images. There's like 40 to 50 of those images in the set, which are actually going to be on view at MoMA in November. Oh, oops. I don't know if that's publicized. I have no idea, it but is um, it is now. Sorry, <laughs> Sean. So, you know, they are definitely nonfiction works, but they, they in some way have become a little fictionalized to me because of how I've treated them, how the Photoshop processes and the, and I, you know, was thinking a lot about color and, and, you know, how to make them my own. It's really like off, like how to, how to make myself the author of the works, which I don't really know how it's possible that I'm the author of those works, considering they're all found images, but that whole body of work is artists have done that for a couple generations. Yes, they have found ways of, so is it, is it kind of the process of completing a circle where the fiction and nonfiction works are, are halves of a whole, or are they just not related to each other. I mean, is that, are they kind of a part of a shared project? Yeah, they're definitely, I think, I mean, I think that my project is still evolving. So it's because my studio works, you know, it kind of spirals out from itself. I think it's going to take time for, for even for it, for me to, to make total sense. But I do know that you know, making Super Unknown in 2010 has led to making a piece called The Gold Miner's Mission to Dwell on the Tideline in 2015, which was in the windows of MoMA right. and actually... Which is a text piece. Which is a text piece, but that text piece also speaks about the same thing, just in a different way. Yeah. It's it's It's... Instead of using photographs, it uses text to bring the same ideas around migrants and around refugees and around how where we are today. It uses it actually uses the same tactics. It's just text based and not photographic. Last question, and then we're going to open it up for questions to the audience. Do you have a collection of National Geographic magazines? I certainly do. So I <laughs> something that is not very present in in the art history of artists of say the last 40 years mm -hmm. is national geographic magazine. But almost every time I talk to photographers or artists with an interest in cultures beyond the United States, they mention national geographic right away. Could you, oh, yeah. how did you come to have a collection of national geographics and, and then how do you, you know, with air quotes, use them mm. to inform? I mean, I know you aren't like cutting things out of them or anything, but how, how do they inf how I do you cut some things them? out sometimes. You do? Oh, yeah. But I don't mean to suggest that you're trying to cannibalize these things as part of a No, project. no. But, but how do you just kind of make use of that either visual or textual information? That's so crazy because, you know, I just moved studios. And so I moved from Williamsburg, my, my main studio, to my house in upstate New York. And so right now, every, my collections of things 
are boxed up, right? But it's sort of like this little treasure that my National Geographics, they are always in my head. They're always, they're always something that I, I you mean individual because you flip through them or as a, no, it's, it's more like the collection. Whole. It's more the fact that I have National Geographics from 1920 something or even earlier because I got them because I was working on a show in Santa Barbara at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Santa Barbara. And I was doing a piece where I wanted to have a, huge collection of National Geographics inside of the installation, actually. And it had to do with other images and research. It was a research-based performance. And this man in, in California, in this crazy mountain town outside of Santa Barbara, had kept every issue from like 1920-something to like 2010-11. And, and we put an ad on Craigslist, and he was like, I really don't want these anymore. And he gave them all to me and they were heavy and the museum paid for them after the show to ship them back to me. So now I have this huge collection, which, you know, National Geographics are actually thin, so you can have a lot of them and they don't take up that much space. But I look at them all the time because they offer, they actually do have, you know, people populated, populating landscapes in all, I mean, so many different types of ways, right? Like, they have people of color in all different types of environments, which I find, I mean, obviously in the beginning, it was very sort of ethnographic kind of discovery, you know, but slash colonial slash colonial. I was, <laughs> yeah, but, it, but, but also like, you know, there's a lot of wonder in like what people are doing that mm. I still find. I don't know if I'm being clear. I think it goes back to lost languages, National Geographic and what they were able to capture, whether it be good or bad, has given us like a treasure trove of lost languages because we just, we don't live in a world like that anymore. And so there are, you know, architectural forms and, and, and um, physical forms that you just won't see anywhere but in the pages of those magazines. And those are, those are shapes and colors and ways of living also in landscape that I'm always looking for and that inform gestures for sure Mm -hmm. beyond the paintings actually which is something we didn't even talk about but National Geographic has informed so much especially this work you said sense of wonder is Mm -hmm. that something you try to get into the work too because I think it's there in a lot of it oh you're sweet I for the most part try to be in a it's weird today I was I had an off day but usually I'm in a real sense of wonder pretty much non-stop I really worked hard to try to have wide eyes for the most part I'm not saying I don't have my days it's just I'm really thankful that I get to make work it and 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 be supported I mean it's a rare yes you've had 200 and some odd artists which seems like a lot, but the, the planet is huge. And to be able to be a woman, be a female, female of color, if you want to add that element, be from New York, you know, and from all these different other things I could label myself. And to be able to consistently produce, be in conversation with, be hosted by, it's a real source of humility for me. And I feel really honored that my brain is actually respected in some way 
because it's only due to the conversations that I'm having in and out of the studio. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.